The vineyard is changing hands. That seems to be what we're reading in these stories this morning. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That's what Isaiah said. The people of Judah are God's pleasant planting. And by the reports of her prophets and her musicians, her psalmists, the house of Israel, maybe not unlike the house of America today, sounds like a pretty nasty place a lot of the time. God expects justice in the vineyard, Isaiah maintains. God demands justice, but finds instead bloodshed. God demands righteousness, but instead hears a cry. People who get power tend to abuse power. That's one easy take-home message you can pull out of these stories. The Pharisees, to whom Jesus is telling another parable about a vineyard changing hands. The Pharisees advise a violent overthrow of one regime in favor of another. Jesus asks them, what will the owner of the vineyard do to this set of wicked tenants who kill his emissaries and put his son to death? And the Pharisees, this native religious aristocracy with whom Jesus is often at odds, seem to be damning themselves when they say the owner will put those wretches to a miserable death. Jesus, interestingly, neither affirms nor denies that violent response. He does make it clear that God is getting ready to transfer ownership of this ancient vineyard, but not necessarily, as Christians have tended to read this parable, not transferring ownership from the synagogue to the church. One Christian reading of this story, the supersessionist reading, is that God is angry with the Jewish people and so has thrown them out of the vineyard in favor of this new Christian movement. And it's, it's hard for me not to draw a direct line of consequence from that violent indictment. The owner will put those wretches to a miserable death. Not to draw a line to the violence that has been perpetrated against Jewish people for centuries often by Christians, using this story as their justification. But Jesus, who is himself a Jewish leader and teacher, remember, he's not telling this story about the vineyard to indict Judaism and establish Christianity in its place. Remember that a couple verses before Jesus tells this parable, Jesus has just said to his listeners, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. That group seems to me to be closer to this new group of tenants Jesus has in mind. He's not interested in forming the Christian church. He does seem to be advocating something a little bit closer to a women's cooperative. <laughs> Whomever Jesus means, he has some really clear ideas about what qualities will define this new group of caretakers in the vineyard. The kingdom of God, he says, will be given to a people who produce the fruits of the kingdom. That's almost a tautology, right? The kingdom will be given to the people who possess the kingdom. But if the prostitutes and tax collectors are the people Jesus has in mind here, if I'm right about that, then I think it's fair for us to ask, what does Jesus mean when he refers to those people as the ones who have the fruits of the kingdom? If that's true, those fruits are a, a different bunch of grapes than most of us are used to harvesting. Sometimes they seem to grow a little wild, maybe, a little messily. They don't always conform to the neat and tidy rows of polite cultivation. If respectable religious leaders like me are being indicted, while the so-called tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes are being brought in in our place, we might well ask, what kind of fruit is God looking for out of this vineyard? I mean, the, 
the traditional bona fides that have served over many generations to define the traditional tenets of the vineyard, the kinds of social markers and experience and skill matrices that have consolidated power and kept some people in charge while relegating other people to the margins, almost certainly that kind of a power upset is the kind of power regime change that Jesus is talking about. Almost certainly he's got some different fruits in mind. That's Paul's idea anyway. Paul says, if anybody else has reason to be confident, I have more. This is his, his great bragging indictment, right? He writes to the Philippians, and we have to update his language, I think, a little bit to really hear what Paul is saying. But like Jesus' parable in Matthew, Paul's dismissal of society's traditional bona fides is not actually a takedown of Judaism, as it has sometimes been read. This is another text where anti-Judaism has tended to rear its dangerous head. In Philippians, though, Paul is using the language of first century partisan politics, right? That's how he makes his point. He's using deliberately provocative language that's aimed at the very polarized political religious world of his culture. It would be like if I decided that I was going to go debate an evangelical conservative today. And I led by saying, hey, I'm a pastor born of pastors. I'm a Sunday school kid. I memorized Bible verses. I grew up holding protest signs out of abortion clinics. I told my classmates that being gay was a sin, and I believed it. But whatever gains I might have had because of my upbringing, Paul says, all of this I have come to regard as loss. More than that, actually, what he says is I regard everything as rubbish. Rubbish is a polite English word that does not capture the provocation that Paul is offering to his original hearers. It's not very often that we have to bleep the Bible, but that's what your translators are doing here. The Greek word Paul uses is a very vulgar one. It's, it's a not very polite word for human excrement. I leave it to you to supply, supply your own little translation of that. That's what Paul says. Everything is shit. That's how he has come to understand the whole realm of power and influence that got him where he is. None of it matters, he says. Now, of course, at another level, Paul knows that it matters, right? The world of politics and power and religion matters deeply. It impacts the lives of his congregation in direct and often terrifying ways. Some of them are already being dragged in front of courts. They're being put to death by magistrates. Paul himself is writing this letter from a Roman jail, and he fully expects his execution at any moment. It would be natural, maybe expected, for him to advocate violent overthrow of this government and emperor that he sees as corrupt. And in many places in Paul's letters, he comes pretty dang close to doing that. But this is also a guy with a, a personal and, an, and a pretty intimate experience of political zealotry. That's why Paul is giving us his bona fides. He's witnessed firsthand what happens when people hold rallies outside of abortion clinics. He knows what happens when true believers get together and ramp one another up, because Paul used to be their organizer. He knows the power of groupthink. He's seen firsthand how quickly a political rally can turn into a lynch mob. According to the book of Acts, Paul himself participated in the violent stonings of his opponents. He's a guy with blood on his hands, and he knows it. So I think that Paul is working out his own redemption as he writes from this Roman prison, awaiting either his release or more likely, and this is what eventually happens to him, his execution. 
forgetting what lies ahead, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the heavenly call. We could sub out the fruits of God's vineyard for that heavenly call, because Paul is talking both about a a this-world reality and a next-world reality. He's pressing on the upward way, as we're going to sing a little bit later on. He is not content to wait until he dies to get there. Paul understands himself as a worker in God's vineyard now. And he would be the first to echo this refrain from the prophet Isaiah, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That is what Paul believes. That's what he's been taught. And that's what he still believes. Here we have a devout Jew working in this ancient land of his ancestors, practicing the rhythms and the rituals of his native faith, even as he tries his darndest to open up the vineyard to a whole new generation of tenants, not by replacing the old tenants and throwing them out onto the trash heap, but by grafting this new crowd of leaders into something with deep roots and powerful implications. The kingdom is being built, even in a time of great social upheaval. Paul's work in his vineyard, even from prison. It's gotten a little wild, a little unkempt by the time he's writing. There's all kinds of arguing happening. Usually that's why Paul is writing, because he's aware of some disputes in the community. And that's actually okay as far as Paul is concerned, right? He, he never sees debate or argument as the real problem. He assumes disagreement and debate in the kingdom of God. But Paul does insist that that give and take, differences of opinion, be done under the rubric of mutual respect. And maybe that's one of his most significant gifts to our current context. The insistence that I treat those who are opposed to me like human beings. Not because it's polite or politically advantageous or the decent thing to do. No, for Paul and for Jesus, it's because my opponent, the word they use is my enemy, right? The one who is trying to take my life away from me. The person who's trying to kill me. Even that one is a beloved child of God and therefore worthy of my consideration and my concern and my prayer. I don't know any other way to say this. I am fully aware that there are Christians right now on both sides of our political debate who might switch me off for saying this. I mean, how, you know, how dare the preacher suggest that so-and-so is a beloved child of God? How dare he extend God's grace and forgiveness, I heaven forbid, God's love to an enemy of the gospel like that one? I never thought that this would be a controversial thing to say from a pulpit, but there it is. The injunction to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me is a gospel imperative. Now, that's not to say that our actions don't matter, right? In the vineyard of God, there are wicked tenants and there are faithful tenants, and Jesus is pretty uncomfortably clear about this, right? There is a transfer of power at work in this parable. Actions have consequences, and God is not neutral, right? God takes sides. And according to the Bible, God is always on the side of the oppressed and the downtrodden. Woe betide you if you end up working against God's agenda of justice. But it is also true, as Paul maintains, That the love of God extends past every human boundary, past the boundary of the vineyard, past its high walls, past the rows of produce, past the watchtower and the wine press. Maybe we need to hear this now more than ever when some Americans are standing back and standing by with their guns. 
while other Americans are actively praying for the death of their president. That is not the way the vineyard is meant to work. Not the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, anyway, not the house of Israel, not the house of America. Cynicism and despair and calculation and contempt have no place in the kingdom of God. No human life deserves to be canceled. No human being is a mistake. And when I discover that I have contempt in my heart for another member of God's creation, I am committing a sin. There's no, no two ways around that. So we long for our vineyard to be restored. There's this beautiful, aching lament for the vineyard that we're going to hear the choir sing in just a few moments during communion. What has, what has gone wrong? Oh, my beloved vineyard, my chosen one. The psalmist's cry is ours. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Show us the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. That's my prayer. A prayer for restoration of everything that has been lost and broken and torn apart. And I look to you, Trinity, because you're the, you're the closest thing I know to the light of God's countenance in these tumultuous days. I can't see your faces, but I know you're there. You're listening at home, maybe with one headphone in your ear while you make your coffee and read the paper, browse the internet or whatever. That's what I do on the weeks that I'm not here in the cathedral, so I assume it's the same in your house, right? Maybe you're listening to me on your run at the gym, driving in the car late at night when you can't sleep. Sermons are great for getting you to sleep sometimes. I don't know how you're hearing this, but I know this community. I know that we're growing and expanding our vineyard, bringing in people from all over the country, around the world, who are joining us virtually for what we're doing right now. We're, we're launching our annual giving campaign today. There's never been a weirder time to ask you to make a commitment or a, a recommitment to this community and everything we stand for. But we are asking for that. We need that. Because those of us who have chosen to make this place our spiritual home Believe that what we're doing matters, maybe now more than ever, and we invite you to join in tending this little corner of God's vineyard. What we're learning is that we need one another right now, maybe more than we ever have before, because the threats that face us from within and without are intense ones. This life is a lonely life, and the isolation and despair that many of us are facing right now is real. We need one another. Because no matter what happens tomorrow, in a month, in a year, God's vineyard remains, right? Ready to produce the fruits of the kingdom for anybody who chooses to renounce despair and cynicism and get to work making something beautiful out of the muck. We cry, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. We look for a miracle. And I think nine times out of ten, God's response is like, well, here's the hoe, dude. Here's the shovel, here's the shears on the watering can. Get to work, right? The vineyard needs you. And so that becomes a decision I make, right? The decision to renounce despair and embrace meaningful action in the face of what seems to be meaninglessness. That's a choice I make. It's a choice to cast a vote despite efforts to suppress me, to advocate for change against the mounting despair that anything can be done about this thing, to hold faith in a better way 
and a better day despite all evidence to the contrary. A choice not to give in to despair and contempt, but rather to use my resources wisely in the service of others. A choice to renounce contempt and double down on compassion. We choose, we can choose to keep connecting across every barrier of race and class and belief and experience. We can choose to love beyond our walls and find joy and beauty in the most unlikely of places. We're, we're pressing on the upward way and there is no force in heaven or on earth that can keep us from the prize.